Well, in singing a, a worship set like that, and particularly that last song, which is one of my personal favorite hymns of all time, just brings such a gravity, doesn't it, to everything in the Christian faith? It is well with my soul when the heavens be rolled back like a scroll. It is well does the Lord will descend. I mean, if that just doesn't lay eternity upon your soul, I don't know what will. It really reminds me of a quote by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones when he was critiqued for being too doctrinal in his preaching. He said, it's not that we don't take practical matters up. We do, he says, but we take them all the way up and we lay them bare before the throne of God as to their Godwardness or godlessness. And that's, that's right. And that's what we're seeking to do here with the subject of marriage. And last week, having looked at the wife's role in marriage, a series of messages entitled God, Marriage, and You, uh, which we've been using as sort of our alliteration for different subjects like God, money, and you, or God, uh, church membership, and you, or God, uh, parenting, and you. We are on the subject of marriage, and so God, marriage, and you. And now we've come to the second analogy in the text here in Ephesians chapter 5, which relates to the husband and Christ. The first analogy was the, the wife and the church. That's the, that's the relationship that exists there in the wife's role to be a godly wife to her husband. And now we look at the husbands. It would be amazing this week how many text messages I got from brothers who said, I won't be there this week. Don't think I'm trying to weasel out of this message. Just letting you know I have to leave town or whatever. So for those of you listening by audio, welcome, from our church at least. This is an important message, and it reminds me that there are so many misconceptions that exist regarding, well, biblical Christianity in its entirety, but misconceptions regarding the issue of marriage as well, what it is, what it isn't, what marriage is supposed to be, what is God's ideal for marriage, what is his design uh, for marriage, we pick up misconceptions and presuppositions uh, the way we grow up and what we are influenced by, examples that we have had or examples that we did not have. We pick up these misunderstandings and misconceptions about all sorts of things that have to do with a biblical worldview, and that's why we are so uh, encouraged that we have the Word of God uh, that will correct us as The Apostle Paul says, all scripture is inspired of God and profitable for correction, instruction, and reproof so that the man of God will be fully adequate, equipped, uh, being equipped, lacking nothing. And so the word of God has the ability to make us adequate for everything, including the role of husband and wife. And um, I'm grateful that we have this very, very clear uh, passage of scripture to go through Uh, There's nothing overtly difficult about the exegesis of this text. The Apostle Paul states it as clearly as possible. Um, And that is good good news for us because we don't really need a whole lot of complicated instruction when it comes to a subject that is so incredibly important for our lives. And so I want to talk about this this calling, this uh, calling to be a husband and a husband that is like Christ, because 
You see the analogy there, husband, love your wives as Christ also loved the church. And so I would say that the first misconception that we bring to the table of marriage is, as husbands is that we fail to understand that the calling to be a husband is fundamentally a calling to love. Uh, it is a call for you to possess a Christian virtue, which is a byproduct of the Spirit of God having been wrought in your heart through regeneration. And that Spirit, or that aspect of the fruit of the Spirit that is to be manifested is predominantly love. So love is kind of like the dominant theme throughout this whole section. Um, Love, love, love. Love is in the air. Well, love is in the text. And so we're going to use the word love really as our alliteration for our, our sermon. So the first thing is this that Paul gives us, that this love should be a sacrificial love that, that, res, that uh, is reserved for our wife or for our wives. Why? Because of the discriminatory nature of the text. Look at what it says. Husband, love your own wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now that's really interesting language because there the Apostle Paul is saying that Jesus gave himself, redemptively speaking, sacrificially speaking, on behalf of a particular uh, uh, individual, if you would. Of course, this is the corporate identity of the church. But he discriminated in who he gave this covenant love to. It was reserved for his bride. And as I often say, that the difference between God's benevolent love and God's covenant love is a chasm, an infinite chasm. Anytime I'm performing a wedding ceremony, I often say to illustrate this covenant love, there are many wives in the room, and I love all of you very much, but I have a particular discriminatory, a very special covenant love for my wife. Uh, so that my love to the rest of the wives in the room pales in comparison to the special, uh, 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 unique covenant love that I have towards my wife. And that is what's really being set forth here. That is the love that Jesus exemplifies to his wife, is that he has a particular bride that has become the object of his love. Christ is our example in this, And that is what we should do with our own spouses. Recognize that God is sovereign, by the way, in putting you with your wife. Isn't that amazing? Even as the Father chose the bride of the Son, so too the Father has chosen our wife, our spouse. He has sovereignly, by decree, come on all you Calvinists, by decree God has put you with the wife of your youth. And so to grumble against your wife is to grumble against the providence of God. God has decreed this for you. He knows what's best for you. Just as Christ delighted in the choosing of the father of his bride, we too should delight in God's choice and his goodness for giving us our bride. You know, the Bible says he who has a, a wife is, is, is blessed, in other words. The Proverbs say that, right? He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Instead of grumbling at God's providence, we should, in an ideal marriage, say with Solomon, my beloved is mine and I am his. In other words, there has to be this mutual, reciprocal, reserved love, particularly for our spouse. 
And that's the love that needs to be protected for a lifetime. It's a love that we need to protect. We should also point out that based on the role of the wife to submit to her husband, we looked at last week, the role of a husband is not to lead our wives only, but to lead them in a certain way, to lead them with love. See, that's the crucial component. And that is a lot of times where people get married, you've got to kind of pop the bubble. It's like, it's not just that you become, you know, sort of the master of the ship, the, the king of your castle. Oh, there is that leadership role. But, you know, sadly today, it's that, you know, you get married and you understand that leadership is automatic, but most of the time, love is not. And that's why we need to work on this virtue. We need to identify when is it that we are slipping out of loving when we are leading. Because we are not called just to lead with a a domineering attitude or a dictatorial attitude or even a childish attitude. An immature attitude, a cold and carnal attitude in the home. No, 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 no. We need to be infused with love. Uh, as leaders and shepherds in our house. That is the kind of love that Jesus has for the church. That's why Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 19, he says, Husbands, love your wives. And what is the opposite of that? Do not be embittered against them. That's, isn't that amazing? Is that if a husband is failing to uh, uh, intentionally love his wife, uh, it's not that you remain neutral towards your wife. Uh, realistically, what's going to happen is that some sort of, instead of a virtue, some sort of a vice is going to fill the void. It's not that you're going to just be sort of a blank slate. If you're not actively loving your wife, probably there is some sort of toxic attitude that you're going to develop in your marriage. Either bitterness or strife or downright anger and hatred towards your wife. Don't, think, don't put any trust in your flesh. Um, make no provision for the flesh, as Paul says. Now, Paul qualifies this love again by pointing us to Jesus' redemptive sacrifice because he says, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. See, this is the language of atonement. This is the language of substitution and vicarious death. Uh, ultimately, where Jesus did this was the cross. And so Paul sees here in the death of Christ on the cross something that is pedagogical for husbands in their marriage, namely that we love our spouse sacrificially. And we'll get to, we'll get to see more of that. But this love that Christ had for, his, for the bride is not only sacrificial, but it is total. It is complete. It is exhaustive. You remember what the Apostle Paul said, and he was sort of reflecting about this for his own life. He says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, you know this verse, I've been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but now Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, here it is, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Can our wives say that about us? My husband loves me and daily gives himself up for me. Jesus loved us with abandon. He held nothing back. He poured himself out to death, Isaiah says, Isaiah 53, 12. And as a matter of fact, Jesus reminds us in John 15, greater love has no one than this 
that he laid down his life for his friends. 1 John 3.16. Not John 3.16, but 1 John 3.16. We know love by this. You want to know what love looks like, really truly looks like, this is what it looks like. He laid down his life for us. That's how we can understand the true power and nature and character and potency of love. And what is John's admonition? We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And so, our wives, brothers, are our brethren. Especially if you're in a believing situation. Your wife is your brethren, but she's not just your brethren. She's not just your brother or sister in Christ. She's more than that. She is your, she is your helpmate. She is your chosen object of your love. The sacrifice, however, is not just our willingness to die, like physically, literally die, to take a bullet for our wife, as it were. And we should be willing to do that if that was what God called us to do. But really, it is, a, it is a lifetime with our spouse. It is, is it an, an expression of dying daily for the sake of our spouse, dying to ourself. Our life with our spouse is meant to be an expression of what Peter calls in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, the grace of life. Any time in your marriage where it doesn't really feel like a whole lot of grace of life is going on, where there's ice in the air, where things are just not right, where life is more strife than life is grace, that's because you need to reevaluate where your marriage is at. Uh, life is given to us as a gift. Uh, don't, don't miss that, by the way. Life is meant to be enjoyed to the fullest extent in the Christian life. What does Solomon say in Ecclesiastes? Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Live life to the fullest. Love God and do whatever you want, by the way. And take your spouse with you. Don't live life to the fullest without your wife, brothers. Don't find your life in that hobby, that, that, that sport, that, that media outlet, that entertainment source, whatever it is, that recreation. You need to be finding the essence of life with your wife, not without her. She needs to be included in what makes life most enjoyable for you. She should be part of the grace of life with you. But our life and our marriage will be frustrated when we fail to manifest the grace of love in our marriage and to each other. This, this runs both ways. This is the message for the men, but in reality, these principles go both ways. This is reciprocal. Men should take stock of their relationship with their wives and ask themselves, how much does my love for my wife come through to her on a daily basis compared to other attitudes, especially sinful attitudes? How much of Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 to 23, does my wife receive from me on a daily basis? Here's the verse. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against these things there is no law. And I can say, you know what? There could not be a greater recipe for success in marriage than this. If we would do a better job of just showering one another with the fruit of the Spirit, 
we would be blessed. But notice Paul's priority. At the, at the head of the clause, the fruit of the Spirit is fundamentally love. Love is the strongest virtue. Isn't that remarkable? Romans 13 verse uh, 10 says this, Love does no wrong. Isn't that remarkable? So if you're wronging your spouse, if you're wronging your wife, it's because you are not loving. Period. It's remarkable. We cannot do both. We cannot at the same time love and claim to love our wives if we are doing them wrong. We just can't. Our love is uh, defective. It is hypocritical. It is insincere. There's something wrong with it. We don't really mean it. The greatest misconception in marriage for men and women is that marriage is a call to get. It's not. In reality, it's a call to give. To give of yourself tirelessly like Christ who poured himself out to death. I'm so glad that he doesn't just tell us what, but he gives us a very practical way to know how to, right? Look at the next um, principle because it's not just a it's not just a sacrificial love, but it's also a sanctifying love, right? It's a sanctifying love that will edify our wives. It's not just a sacrificial love that, will, that is reserved particularly for our wife, but it's also a sanctifying love that will edify them. You know, that is to say that any godly woman, what she wants more than anything else in the marriage is spiritual edification, more than the gifts, more than the presents, even more than chocolate, right? More than a good meal at a fancy restaurant, more than all of that, more than you uh, even remembering all the special dates for whatnot. What a godly woman craves more than anything is to be spiritually edified by her husband, to be led spiritually the way that Christ led spiritually his bride and the way he leads his bride. How does he do it? Well, let's just read on. Verse 26, so that he might sanctify her. So that's the purpose of his sacrificial death is sanctification. And he says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. That's the purpose. That's the goal. That's what should be at the top of the list. And as we learn from Christ's own eschatological interest in His church, we understand that all spiritual discipline, all the means of grace that we can take advantage of, uh, both individually and collectively as husband and wife in marriage, all of that, all of the devotion, all of the spiritual maturity, all of it has an eternal weight to it. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 because it helps us if we have an eternal perspective of our calling as husbands to know that what we're doing in time and space here in this realm, in this age, in this lifetime, is going to redound and is going to directly and correspondingly affect what happens in eternity. Let that lay heavy on you tonight, brothers. That what we're doing in time and space has a direct eternal impact. Look at 2 Corinthians 4.16. 
little bit of a different context, but not really because, I mean, is your marriage devoid of trials? Verse 16 says, Therefore do not lose heart. For though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day for momentary and light affliction, here it is, is producing in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And then verse 18, sort of, he begins to, he he sort of introduces like a general principle, a universal principle for all of the Christian life. Here it is. While we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are not seen, for the things that are seen are temporary or temporal, and the things that are not seen are eternal. And so what he's saying is this, Whatever we go through in marriage, whatever trials we go through, if we have this sort of eternal perspective, we understand that invisibly and maybe imperceptibly to us, something is actually happening in the eternal realm. Namely, there is an eternal weight of glory that is being manufactured by the way that we relate to one another in marriage. Isn't that remarkable? There are rewards at stake. There is also loss at stake. Just like the minister that will be either rewarded or refused reward on the day of judgment, so too the husband, the wife, the spouse. But here, the husband will also be either rewarded or he will suffer loss because of what he's done in his marriage. Failure to have this perspective, therefore, presents a great danger for us because here's why the reason why this is so important is because it's not just that well we may we may miss out on doing the right thing but it's because when we do not intentionally seek the lord in our marriages we will if you would there will be a domestic drift that happens you will not remain neutral your marriage will not just stay in the same stage that it was last year No, 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 no. Just like with your individual walk with God, if you are not actively pursuing maturity, Christian maturity, you will drift. And so will your marriage. So will your house. And so will your kids. Um, We see this probably exemplified best in Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5, you know the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Because the thing that I want to say is that we can be leading our house to church, but not leading our house to Christ. There's a big difference, folks, than just showing up. Uh, I don't care if you're in ministry either. Um, Ananias and Sapphira were probably in ministry together. They were, they were, they were, you know, they were in the core circle. They were in the inner circle of the church. They knew the apostles, right? They gave a, a financial contribution that seemed to be very significant for the life of the New Testament church. But we know that beneath the surface, Ananias and Sapphira's house, their marriage was not healthy. We know that greed was allowed to fester there. And if it's not greed, it may be something else. And ultimately, we know what happened. God made an example out of them that even though they were there, oh, they appeared, they were participating, they went to church, they showed up. And we need to do all those things. We have to, in order to have a healthy marriage, we have to have a healthy relationship with the church that's critical, that's foundational, that is preeminent. That should be a priority at the top of the list. 
You should be in a church. You should be, a, you should be pursuing uh, uh, not only church membership, but actively uh, engaging in, in ministry and in the means of grace together. You should be on a spiritual quest together. Ananias, though, led his wife to ministry, but not to Christ. See, the reason why is because they did not lay the word of God to bear upon their life. In other words, in order for our marriages to truly grow and blossom and to truly mature spiritually, which is the most important level of it all, then we have to be those that know how to profit from the Word of God in every situation in our marriages. Um, That's why it says here that He sanctifies the bride with the Word. Look back there with me again. He says in verse 26, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her with the washing of water, with the Word. The Word is your preeminent tool in your marriage, men. That's why men need to be encouraged in the church to be theologians, to pursue the knowledge of God, to know their Bibles, to be a student of their Bibles. And this is where a wife comes in as a helpmeet to her husband, to stir him up and spur him on to deeper and deeper devotion to doctrine and to the knowledge of God so that that might reflexively come back to you and that you would inherit a blessing. In other words, you need to... See, the same thing that Jesus said about His bride, John seventeen seventeen, where He says, Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. The same thing applies in marriage. Marriage is to be sanctified in the truth. His word is truth. And so, we need to learn how to treasure Scripture together. Uh, Turn to Psalm 119. This is what our marriage should be meditating on, is how the Word of God affects us its capacity, its potential, its ability in our lives. What ability does the Word of God have in our lives? Well, this is what it has. Psalm 119, which, remember, this is Psalm 119 is just really an exposition of Psalm 1. And in Psalm 1, there we learn that the blessed man, what does he do? Not only does he He doesn't listen to the counsel of the ungodly and all of that. But what does he do in verse 3? He meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. And he bears fruit in every season, right? And so an exposition of that is this. Psalm 119, beginning of verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. Restoring, or we could even translate that Hebrew word, reviving the soul. If your marriage needs some reviving then you need the law of the Lord. You need the Word of God injected into your relationship more and more. It's not just that you are off, and trust me, you guys can see me preaching myself here going off into my office, right? It's not that you're off on your own little quest of spiritual edification and biblical knowledge the husband has a great relationship to take whatever he's learning from the Lord and to bring it right back and feed it to his wife. The law of the Lord is perfect. Now notice the all-sufficiency of the Word of God. The law of the Lord is perfect. In other words, totally sufficient, 
It's totally adequate, perfectly efficacious. The problem is never with the Word. The problem is always with us. Restoring the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. How many times do husbands get frustrated with their wives because they just don't know enough? Or that's something you should already know. I can't believe you still don't know what this doctrine means or what this word means or how to apply this verse or how to interpret that scripture. Every time you say that to your wife, you should, you should hear it as an indictment in your own life that apparently you're not doing enough of a good job of teaching her so that she knows how to do those things. You know what's amazing? It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. The Apostle Paul says women ought to be silent in the church, and if they want to learn something, let them go to their husbands. You know what our culture does? Ah! Be silent! How dare the Word of God say be silent? They didn't read the rest of the verse. Ask your husband. What? Culture listens to something like that and goes, that's incredibly condescending and chauvinistic. That's why I hate Christianity. Because, you know, it doesn't conform to feminism or whatever. They miss the boat. I see that and I say, wow. According to Paul, husbands have the ability to teach their wives. Husbands have the ability to teach their wives what I'm teaching in Sunday school. Or in here. Or what you're learning from Mark Jones. Or what you're learning from the ladies' study, the men's study. Husbands have the competency, the adequacy. See, you guys think you're off the hook because, oh, I'm not the pastor. Thank goodness, it's all on him. No, 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 no. If you're a husband, you are the pastor of your home in a sense. You are to shepherd your home. That's why you need to take Bible study just as serious as I do, even if you don't have as much much time as I have to prepare uh, in the Word of God. You should take it just as serious. Just as serious. I tell you, when I was working years ago in construction, 6 o'clock in the morning, all those beautiful California freeways, I tell you, John MacArthur was my salvation. Those mornings, all I wanted to do was just be in the Word of God. All I wanted to do was just read a commentary or something. And I didn't have, I couldn't. I had to go swing a hammer. But on the way, I'll tell you what, on the freeway, boom, John MacArthur. Here we go, unleashing the Word of God, one verse at a time, you know, every morning. Thank God for the ministry of radio, and now we got, now we got no excuse. We got podcasts. We could just listen to any theologian who has a podcast or sermons or whatever, and just download that stuff right into our brain. And if we believe in Psalm 19, we believe that the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. That's what brings joy into your home. It's not that gadget you got to go buy. It's not that piece of furniture It's not that house that you want. It's not that car. It's not that job. It's not any of that. What injects joy into your home is the law of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord. Why? Because they are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. It's one thing that won't run out in this crazy world. It will not run out. All those gadgets will fail you. Why do you think they have iPhone 1, 2, 3, 4? What are we on now? 10 or something? 
Now they want to, you know, scan your face. I don't know. I'm thinking about buying it. <laughs> they get us with that stuff, right? But let us all be reminded as we're drowning in our technocratic world that those things do not endure. What endures is the Word of God, the fear of God. And that alone can restore our home, can revive our home, can rejoice our marriage. Boy, it takes humility, doesn't it? The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. If the husband is going to present his wife holy and blameless, he must see the value of God's Word and apply it consistently to his life. Um, the last thing is this. Not just a sacrificial love that's reserved for our wife, not just a sanctifying love that edifies our wife, but here's the other one. A selfless love that treasures our wife as well. Look at verse 28. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife, uh, his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. And so this emphasis on a selfless kind of love. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, since we are on the analogy of Christ, learning from Christ, imitating Christ, here in Philippians chapter 2, we get a glimpse into the consciousness of Christ, the mind of Christ, literally, not us, the mind of Jesus Christ, how he thought, what was his attitude. And it tells us, I tell you what, these are directives for the church. These are Paul's directives for a local body. But how incredibly practical is this for our marriage? Right? What does he say? Do nothing. Verse 3. Philippians 2, verse 3, if you're not there. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Boy, do some men, including me, do we need to learn this. Do nothing from being selfish or conceited, but with humility of mind. Imagine, imagine that, that they both go together, selfishness and conceit. You think that's ironic that he put those together? I don't think it's a coincidence. I think if you're a very, very selfish person, then you are by necessity probably going to be a very inflated person. You're also going to be extremely conceited, empty conceit, which is basically like vainglory. You have a wrong view of yourself. You think higher of yourself than you ought to. He says, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Brothers, you want the key to a successful marriage? That's it right there. We just read it. Regard one another as more important than yourself. If you can do that, if, I mean, think about it. Think about your wife. I tell you what, you want to get, get one over on your wife in a good way? This is how you do it. Be selfless. Be selfless. Do what Paul is saying here. When he says, do not merely look out for your own interests, what you want to watch, what you want to eat, what you want to do, where you want to go, how long you want to do it for. Don't only look out for your own interests, he says, but also for the interests of others. And Trish is out there going, I'm recording everything you're saying right now. This is great. <laughs> you, you guys think you're going to get it later. 
This is why we need to understand that our spouse, we need to understand what they need. Turn to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3. This is crucial. These are all the texts that we need to be meditating on for the sake of our homes. And 1 Peter, really one th- all the way to verse 10, but in verse 7 gives us this. To be interested in the interests of others means that you understand others. And Paul, or Peter says, you husbands in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. As with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. We'll come back to that in a minute. We'll come back to that in a minute. Notice that Paul tells us to treat our wives as our own body. See that? Such a simple illustration, isn't it? You want to take care of your body? Take care of your wife. You know how you care about your body? Some of you are like, you know, fitness freaks. Some of you are like health nuts, you know. You got to always eat organic, you know. You got to count all your calories, you know. McDonald's has organic food now for crying out loud, I think. We are so concerned about our body. Nothing necessarily wrong with that as long as you take the same amount of time and priority to love not just your body, but to love your wife. It's almost as if the Apostle Paul, what he's saying is this. It says, oh, love your wife as, as, as if you are one with her, because in reality, you are one with her. You are one with her. She was even taken out of you. <laughs> Genesis chapter 2, verse 21, 21 and following. Remember, God put Adam to sleep, opened up a side of his, of his body, took out a rib, fashioned the woman out of him. We are one. We are one with one another. The body helps us to see the intimacy that should be existing in our marriage. That we should be so near, our wives should be so near and dear to our hearts, even as our own flesh. Why are you going to the gym? Why are you eating right? Why do you take long, hot showers that feel so good? Is it because you love your body? Yeah, you better believe it is. Is there anything wrong with that? No, as long as you love your wife the same way that you are cherishing and treasuring your body. If not, then you are full of self-interest. You're not humble of mind. You're you're prideful of mind. It's the opposite of Christ. You know, to help us see this, I think the Apostle Paul finishes this whole section with two analogies. Uh, We can call them analogies, but it's really a how and a why. How really helps us understand how are we to view ourselves as one. Uh, Go back to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, because there he goes all the way back to the beginning. It's as if back to basics. Let's go back to Genesis, to where it all started. You understand your union with your wife. You understand the intimate relationship. You want to understand how indissoluble you are. Let's go back to the foundation of it all, namely God's creation ordinance. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
failure to treasure our spouse in this way, when we allow others to interfere with our marriage, is to commit, is to commit covenant treachery. And I take that from Malachi. You can turn there if you'd like. Malachi chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, right? Classic passage on marriage. But this is important. This is an extreme example. This is a severe problem going on in Israel at the time of the prophet where men were sending their wives away for no good reason at all just because they wanted a change or they wanted to you know, try something new or they were annoying or they just had a bad relationship. And so for any reason at all, even as Jesus points out in Matthew 19, for the hardness of heart, they were writing certificates of divorce and getting rid of their wives. Okay, in the ancient world, a wife surviving, it's a big deal. It's a big deal in the ancient world for you to be kicked out by a man and just be sent out to, def- to fend for yourself and the barbarity of the ancient world. And so God identifies this as treachery. He says in chapter 2 of Malachi, Malachi 2.13, this is another thing that you do. You cover your altar of the Lord with tears, weeping and groaning because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. And then the people are saying, yet you say, for what reason? Why does the Lord do this? Why does He reject our prayers and our worship? Because the Lord has been witness between you and your wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. See why marriage is so important. This is why if I'm going to perform a marriage, I require four sessions of premarital counseling so we can sit down and figure out is this actually a good, sound, healthy, biblical marriage. Because I am going to officiate a covenant. And so I take it serious. And then he goes on to say, Take heed to your spirit, middle of verse 15, and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. You know how you can take heed to your soul or your spirit that you don't deal treacherously? Then you need to lavish your wife, actively lavish her with the word of God and with what Paul is talking about here. Pursue the things of God with your wife and you will not neglect to edify her, to encourage her, to love her the way that you're called to love her and not to fall into this treacherous trap. The final thing, or the final analogy, it's not just how, but also, uh, excuse me, it's not just uh, how, but it's also why. That's right. The last analogy is the gospel. Uh, Look at verse 32. This mystery is great. Oh, the profundity of it all. Oh, how profound the analogy between marriage and Christ and the church and It is so profound. And he says, I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, I like this nevertheless because we need this simplicity, don't we? Nevertheless, real simple, each individual among you is to love his own wife even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. That's wonderful news for us that if we follow this simple recipe, if you would, this is the cheat cheat for how to have a good, happy marriage. Just obey this verse 
It's not even the whole verse. It's even part of the verse. He says, he says here, love your own wife as yourself and make sure a wife respects her husband. It cannot get any clearer than that. And the reason why we do this is because the gospel is at stake. It's because every single marriage in this church is to be a portrait of the gospel relationship between Christ and the church. When that relationship is not sound, when our marriage is not right, when we are not getting along, when we're fighting about the same thing for the last 20, 30 years, we are not reflecting Christ in the church. And that's what's at stake, is that we are to be a true reflection of the selfless sacrifice of Christ, of the humble obedience of the church. And when we do that, we reflect the glory of God in our marriage. Brothers, let me, let me just end with this. If you're discouraged, you've been through some stuff in your marriage. You're beat down. You've gone through setbacks. You've had heartaches. You've been through terrible times, treacherous crisis in your marriage. I want to just encourage you by telling you there is hope for you. Uh, this is not a message of condemnation. Oh, do this, do this, do this, do this. It's not just a, a list of do's and don'ts. There are commands. Don't be deceived. But ultimately, as any true biblical healthy marriage, it is founded on grace. And that's what we need in marriage, is towards one another, is to be gracious, long-suffering, forgiving, and tolerant of one another. Without that, if God should mark iniquity, who can stand? Neither husband nor wife. Therefore, we both have to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, and He will heal your marriage. Let's pray. Well, Father, obviously, somebody said somewhere that a healthy church is only as good as its, its marriages and its homes. And so, Father, I pray that we would feel the deep accountability as church members, that the way that we treat one another in our homes when we go back home Monday through Saturday has a direct correlation of the health of our church just another weighty responsibility that we bear. And at the same time, Lord, we are so thankful to you that you are gracious to us, that you are long-suffering toward us. Every husband in this church should have lost the good, gracious gift that you gave us in marriage long ago. But you are such a good and gracious and merciful God. Thank you that there is hope for anyone here that will pursue the biblical principles that you give us in your word and that it's not over. And that no matter where we've been, if we humbly obey, as Peter says, we can see good days. And so, Lord, would you work that into our marriages by your spirit and for your glory? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.